Oh my god, they're dead! Who could have done such a heinous act? I bet it was that frog down by the swamp. I don't like that frog. He's got them shifty eyes. It was that convict iron jaw, that rapscallion. I bet it was that strange shadowy figure that likes to swing in the park on Thursday nights. I swear to you, it was my stuffed panda. He's, he's possessed. It could have been Ricky's arm. We haven't seen it since it got cut off. I definitely know who the killer is. That that way. Way. Blank is the killer. Hello and welcome to Blank is the Killer, the unoriginal horror movie podcast where I, your goblin in disguise, Josh Baker, cover six new-to-me horror movies with a random spooky topic seven at the end. This episode features deadly politics, killer tones, and hungry goblins. Come over to my big old manor where we can talk about horror while murdering people we don't like. Number one, Crawlers, 2020, directed by Branded Zuck. It's St. Patrick's Day. A cop is killed by an alien who then shapeshifts into the cop. A girl named Misty goes to see a friend she's having a falling out with named Chloe. Chloe has a new friend named Eugen. Misty says frat bros drugged her, but Chloe doesn't really believe her or care. Shauna, the local drug dealer, shows up. Chloe is kidnapped. Misty thinks the frat bros took her. They go to the frat house and find one bro, Aaron, tied up with a nasty bite on his leg. He says Chloe bit him while they were consensually about to do it and ran off. Cop Alien shows up and is killed by Aaron. Shauna's mom tells them where to find the alien nest. Eugen is taken out after it's revealed she's an alien. The gang saves Chloe and blows up the nest. Aliens are the killers. In 1994, Green Day released their album, Dookie. It's an amazing album that rocketed the band to fame. Unlike that Dookie, Crawlers is the bad kind of Dookie. Smelly, fresh, dog Dookie. Have you ever gone to pick up after your pup and been like, What the hell, bud? What did you eat that has brought my poor nose this rank stench this day? Hulark movies are bad. I understand that. Sure, there are a small percentage of Hulu Into the Dark features that don't make me want to shut them off every two seconds, but Crawlers is definitely classic Garbaggio Hulark. Hularky, if you will. I'll be honest with you listeners, I didn't give Crawlers my full attention. It had my attention until around the 10th time there was a pause for Shauna, the terrible narrator, to provide us with pointless information. Shauna narrates the entire movie. Every two minutes the movie is paused for Shauna to tell us some mundane information that doesn't move the plot forward or add anything to the movie. The runtime for Crawlers is around 80 minutes. I feel confident in saying at least 10 minutes is spent having Shauna talk over freeze frames. I was audibly groaning after the fifth time. I have no idea why someone thought it was a good idea to halt the film a billion times. You know that thing where people pause a video of someone beefing it and add in the, it was at this moment he knew he F-worded up. That can be funny because it happens once in a video. 
Picture that kind of stop, but now picture it happening constantly while you're watching a movie. In Crawlers, it's not funny. It's not informative. It's just annoying. All of the dialogue is overwritten and cringy. Yeah, cringy. I hate that word, but it's the only word that perfectly encapsulates the dialogue in Crawlers. In the movie, it's explicitly revealed that at least some of the frat bros are at the very least attempted date rapists. Shauna tells the gang how one of the frat guys specifically asked her for roofies. She sold him Tic Tacs. Anyway, throughout the film, we're supposed to go from thinking that Aaron is a frat boy rapist to knowing he's a frat boy with a heart of gold instead. Thing is, at one point in the film, the gang calls out Aaron for the date raping, to which he responds, I'm not like the other guys in the frat house I live in. I don't date rape like they do. Um, Aaron. What? Aaron. You seem to be the frat leader? Aaron knows that his bros are out a-raping, but it's totally fine. He's not doing it. It's cool, ladies. Only my friends and roommates will roofie you. Not me. I'm a stand-up guy. Who wrote this garbage? Catherine Wignall, with help from Mike Gann, the guy who directed School Spirit. Maybe we should stop letting y'all work on stuff. Jason Blum. Jason Blum, please give me a cartoon sack of cash. I guarantee I can put together a better movie than these hacks you keep giving chances. I already have. The Bloody Reuben is better than almost all of the Hularks. Facts. I admitted to being tuned out most of the movie, but I'm pretty damn sure not a single alien is shown. The aliens are always in human disguise form. The gore, it's passable I guess, but there's barely any. The acting, dreadful. I'm not giving everyone a pass due to the terrible writing this time. The acting was real bad and boring. The best part of the movie is the opening credits, which include a Kim Petrus song. All the budget and effort appears to have gone into those opening credits. I'll give you that, Crawlers. Great opening credits. That's it, though. To the surprise of no one, Crawlers should be completely avoided and will be popping up on the rotten list during this year's pumpkin harvest. Number 2. The Hunt, 2020, directed by Craig Zobel. If you've seen a trailer for this, the entire thing has been spoiled for you already, but if you still want to go in spoiler-free, my short review is that this movie is bland and mediocre. Let them have it, spoiler beard. Skip to 11 minutes 49 seconds to avoid spoilers. Alright, 3, 2, 1. After some liberal elites are fired when a private text chain about a fake manner where they joke about killing deplorable Republicans goes public... The elites actually create the manor and hunt down some kidnapped Republicans. Crystal is amongst the hunted and the smartest of the bunch. With the help of another survivor, Don, Crystal takes out all of the elites but their leader, Athena. Athena tricks Crystal into killing Don by saying he was a plant. Crystal and Athena then duke it out. Crystal kills Athena, then heads back home on a private jet. The liberal elite and Crystal are the killers. Crystal kills Don, who was actually on her side. The Hunt. The movie that was delayed due to a bunch of stupidity. The movie that's filled with a bunch of stupidity.
Is it entertaining? Barely. It is entertaining, though. I enjoyed the hunt much more than a lot of other recent releases like The Lodge and Crawlers. That doesn't mean the hunt is good. I did think it was pretty cool for the hunt to instantly start killing off characters you'd think would survive until at least the third quarter of the movie. A big draw for me was Emma Roberts. I'm a big fan of hers. She's amazing in comedic over-the-top roles. I bring it up a lot, but if you love camp and slashers, check out the first season of Scream Queens, where Roberts plays one of the funniest characters of all time, Chanel. Roberts' character in The Hunt dies right off the bat, as do a bunch of other characters. It was a nice subversion of expectations. Most of the deaths happen in the first 30 minutes. There's a decent amount of variation. On the plane ride over to the manor, a victim wakes up early, so the elites dispatch him with a pen to the neck, then a heel to the eye. The shoe is then removed, revealing an eyeball, optic nerve, and all. It's well done and incredibly silly. Once at the manor, a bunch of deaths are caused by gunshots. That's boring, but during the chaos, a girl falls into a spiked pitfall trap and is impaled in multiple places. She's helped out of the trap, only to be blasted back in after her rescuer steps on a landmine. That is probably the most humorous and ridiculous sequence in the entire movie. I'd go as far to say that's the peak. If the hunt had kept that level of absurdity throughout the rest of the movie, I would easily be recommending it. The biggest problem with the hunt is the fact that it comes off as baby's first attempt at satire. None of the satirical elements work because they barely exist. The writing is awful. It's like the writer looked around on social media for two seconds and jotted down all the tired insults both sides sling at each other. What the writers don't understand is the real villain is class disparity. Back to the deaths and gore. One dude dies after being shot with three arrows. It's always three arrows. Lord of the Rings, Valentine, The Hunt. I don't have more examples off the top of my head, but apparently it takes three arrows to kill someone. Well, Boromir and the Hunt guy don't technically die from the three shots right away, but still. The Hunt guy has two grenades thrown at him to finish him off. The person who threw the first one forgot that you have to pull out the pin. <laughs> Dumb liberal doesn't know how to use a grenade, am I right? Remember that joke from middle school, what do you do if insert person that's being bashed at the time throws a grenade at you? Pull the pin out and throw it back. A classic. It really cracked up elementary school me. Sorry, I had to dunk on the writing again. A lot of the gore in the movie is done using CGI, but there are enough practical effects peppered throughout for the gore to look solid enough. The acting is a mixed bag. The best performance is definitely from Betty Gilpin as Oddball Crystal. It's a strange performance to say the least, but it's definitely the most captivating. Pet warning. The liberal elites end up shooting and killing their own pet pig. It's more stupid than disturbing. Overall, The Hunt is a movie with a lot of wasted potential. It's a movie that doesn't end up having anything new to say. Why even get names like Emma Roberts and Glenn Howerton if you aren't going to use their strengths effectively? Don't go out of your way to watch The Hunt. Number 3. Bloodhook. 
1986, directed by Jim Mallon. A young Peter sees his grandpa die. 17 years later, Peter and his friends drive to where he grew up to stay in his family's home. A contest to see who can reel in the biggest musky fish is going on. Peter's friends and other people they meet start getting picked off by an unseen fisherman. It's revealed that Mr. Ludke has been doing the murdering. Ludke kills after he hears the devil's tritone, which is created by certain music accompanied by cicadas. Peter saves his girlfriend that he's not that into. The police show up and Ludke runs off. Ludke is the killer. It's also revealed that Ludke killed Peter's grandpa, whatever. If you caught the last episode, I saw a trailer for Bloodhook during the Agfa Horror Trailer Show. The trailer made it look like a slasher that took place during a big fishing contest. In reality, Bloodhook is a slasher that does have a fishing contest going on, but the contest is more in the background than the trailer led on. I was hoping for silly fishing competition shenanigans aplenty. There are some, one guy in particular, Denny, the reigning champ, is a huge cheater. So you see him try to cheat by having his own big fish ready to catch and putting a metal rod into another fish to make it way more. <laughs> that rascal. Anyway, as soon as it popped up that this is a trauma movie, I lowered my expectations. Don't jump down my throat just yet. I'll be honest, I have not seen a lot of trauma movies. I know trauma holds a special place in a lot of people's hearts. Thing is, seeing trauma pop up on an obscure movie I had never heard of before a trailer show didn't bode well for my enjoyment levels. Bloodhook is still a fun time. All I'm saying is that I'm glad I tempered my expectations after seeing Troma. I would love to be more versed in Troma, so if you are a Troma diehard, which I respect, please let me know what Troma movies to check out. Bloodhook is filled with hot 80s ladies. It's not full of hot 80s boys, though. The hottest dude in the movie by far is over 60. That's right, listeners, there is a foxy grandpa in Bloodhook. He looks like an old hipster who traveled back in time. Perfectly manicured beard, flannel shirt, fashionable frames. Good for you, foxy grandpa. He's one of the best characters, too. He's always telling people to stop with all the malarkey, but not in a depressing boomer way like Joe Biden. How are the other characters? There's a single mom. Well, she may or may not be single. I must have missed a line about her husband passing away or being at work at the time. She's always working out. She's up there with Foxy Grandpa in the best character section. Workout mom was so sweet and innocent, I was bummed when she died. Her cheating or not cheating doesn't change that fact. I ended up really liking Peter as a character. But that's only because when I looked at Peter, I saw Trey Parker, goofily overacting. It's not actually him. Mark Jacobs played Peter. Watch the movie and tell me that Peter doesn't remind you of Trey Parker. Gore? Oh, I talk about that, right? The gore in Bloodhook isn't impressive. There is blood and hooks. I can only see humans caught by an oversized fish hook so many times before it bores me. The best makeup effects work is definitely done on the corpses. They look just like the zombies in the Thriller music video. After I lost interest in the whole bloody human catch of the day, 
Bloodhook reeled me back in when Peter and Ludke ended up hooking each other with big-ass hook-covered lures at the same time. That was hilarious and one of the zaniest fights I've ever seen in a slasher. I really liked that Ludke was driven to kill by the Devil's Tritone. What a camptastic motive. I guess it's not really a motive, more of a compulsion. Ludke didn't purposely take a bullet to the dome and leave it there to weaken his constitution to the Devil's Tritone. At the end of it all, I recommend checking out Bloodhook. Look for the Blu-ray instead of renting it on Amazon. I rented and the quality was not the best. Bloodhook is a campy slasher that has enough entertaining moments outside of the repetitive kills. It's not anywhere near the top 80s slashers I've seen, but it's fun. The director went on to be executive producer of Mystery Science Theater 3000. Good for him. Number 4, Upgrade, 2018, directed by Lee Whannell. Gray and his wife are in a self-driving car when it crashes after being hacked. Gray's wife is then killed by a guy who also paralyzes Gray from the neck down. Aaron, a man Gray sold a car to, implants a chip in Gray that allows him to move his body again. The chip is part of an AI named Stem. Stem helps Gray track down and kill the men that had a hand in his wife's death. It's then revealed that Aaron caused the accident at the behest of Stem. Stem breaks Gray's brain and makes Gray believe everything was a dream. Stem then takes full control over Gray's body. Stem and Fisk are the killers. Fisk is the guy that killed Gray's wife. Everyone else in Fisk's group was turned off by the murder. Aw, oh, come on, Fisk. Why you gotta do kill, dude? After watching The Invisible Man, I knew I'd have to go back and check out Wanell's upgrade. I kind of wanted to see it in theaters back when it originally released, but I needed to see a horror movie and wasn't sure if it counted. It's my podcast, so Upgrade counts as a horror movie. I mean, it's a spooky story of an AI murdering a bunch of people, then taking over a human body. I am become vulnerable fleshbag. Weird end goal, Mr. AI. A big reason I waited to see Upgrade was the part in the trailer where Gray says he's a ninja, and Stem responds that he is not a ninja. <sighs> I don't know how that made it into the movie. It's awful. It's definitely the worst dialogue in the movie. Speaking of worst, Gray is played by Logan Marshall Green, whose performance is all over the place. There are multiple times in the movie where his delivery is so wacky, I was flabbergasted that another take wasn't done. His performance is incredibly entertaining, but I'm not sure why someone didn't reel him in more or at all. Everyone else does okay. Come to think of it, no one gives an amazing performance. No one even gives a great performance. That's okay though because Upgrade is more about the action and world. I was surprised by the world building, earpiece phones, table computers, police drones, and body mods. Nothing is overtly explained. At one point, Fisk sneezes tiny nanobots at a bartender, which deploy size while flying towards the poor soul and kill him by slicing up his insides. That's OP. Please nerf scythe nanobots in the next patch. How is it possible that Gray beats a guy that can sneeze out deadly nanobots? Fisk decides not to use them for 
some reason. During the beginning of the fight, Fisk wants Grey to join his team of upgraded soldier boys, but before Grey evokes Fisk's irrational emotions to come out causing him to forget about his nano-death machines, Fisk was just going to use his hand blaster to blow off Grey's head after defeating him. Come to think of it, Fisk is a gritty Mega Man. Before Grey becomes one with AI, he's continuously complaining about technology ruining everything. Then boom, AI man. It reminded me a lot of that Deus Ex Machina game where the main character's body is modified without consent to save him after an accident. A quote from that game that applies to Grey in Upgrade. And a lot of random situations like getting an unordered extra medium fry with your drive through order is, I never asked for this. The practical sets, vehicles, buildings, interiors, and special effects makeup really helped with the world building and upgrade. I did not expect such high level production quality. Coming into upgrade, I expected boatloads of gnarly gore. There is one yeesh inducing gore scene when Grey and Stim use a kitchen knife to give a dude a Pac-Man face. That was intense. All the other gore pales in comparison. Regular knife cuts and gunshots aren't going to wow me after that first flappy head creating revenge kill. All the gore is well executed even if not all of it is exciting. Most of it looks practical. I do feel that the camera following stem controlled Gray's movements is done a bit too much and is pretty disorienting at times. I still appreciated the unique approach to filming the fight scenes. Upgrade is worth checking out if you have been avoiding it because you don't like intense gore. Just close your eyes for a moment after Stem Gray picks up a knife when battling the first guy. This Lee Winnell guy seems to be pretty good at this movie thing. I learned he wrote the original Saw. I also learned that his name is pronounced Lee, not Lay, which is how I pronounced it in the last episode. My B, Lee. Number 5, Troll 2, 1990, directed by Claudio Fragasso. Joshua's dead Grandpa Seth warns Josh about goblins. Grandpa Seth says goblins can look like normal people and will feed victims green food that will turn the victim partly into a plant. Goblins love to eat people-plant hybrids. Josh and his family go on vacation to Nilbog. There are goblins there. Josh does everything he can to make his family believe him that goblins exist. Josh's sister's boyfriend's friends are killed by the goblins and their druid leader, Credence. With the help of Grandpa Seth, the family touches Credence's magical stone and defeats the evil. Josh and his mom go home. Josh's mom eats an apple. The apple has green goo inside. The goblins show up and eat her. Credence and her goblins are the killers. Before I go any further, I normally do a bit of research when working on a section. Not this time. I will only be using IMDB for character and actor names. Why? I had a crazy idea, um, a rather bland idea, I suppose, but an idea. I'd watch Troll 2, write about my experiences, sans research, and then watch the documentary about it called Best Worst Movie. That's right, Best Worst Movie will be Section 6. Let's not get ahead of ourselves, though. Troll 2. I... I don't know where to begin. Do I start with how Grandpa Seth was able to freeze time, allowing Joshua to whiz all over a feast his family was about to chow down on that was poisoned by goblins? Do I bring up the fact that I'm not sure how many people even died in the movie? 
I know one dude is turned into a plant and another is caught trying to save him. One was chainsawed a bit. Were they eaten? I can't recall seeing goblins slurp up the goop of those two boys. What about their friend that was seduced by sexy credence who mounted the horned dog and essentially shared a corn on the cob with him, which somehow turned into a bunch of popcorn, which left the guy completely covered yet still alive. Why were Josh's mom's hoo-hahs so pronounced after she transformed into her goop form? Did Josh want to eat his mom as some sort of weird goop-eating Oedipus complex? I have loads of questions, but not a lot of answers. Troll 2 is hailed as the worst movie ever made. Is it? No. If Troll 2 was made today by a comedic group who said it was supposed to be a surreal horror comedy set in the late 80s, that comedic group would be lauded as absolute geniuses. Troll 2 lives up to the hype of being the best So Bad It's Good movie ever made though. I can't think of any other bad good movie that is anywhere near Troll 2 in terms of entertainment throughout. There are no lulls. I barely wanted to make any jokes while watching it since then I'd miss some hilarious dialogue and delivery. All of the acting is absolutely horrendous. I'd say the best actor is Michael Stevenson as Joshua. Yes, the child actor is the best. I don't know how that's possible. Deborah Reed played Credence Lenore Gilgood, and she's doing her best. She delivers everything like she's performing at a small town's community theater. She's so entertaining that even a video of her reading the phone book would probably crack a million views on YouTube. Robert Ormsby played Grandpa Seth, and he's mostly okay when he's not trying to smile like a normal human being. The worst actors of the bunch are the parents. Margot Prey played the mom and doesn't seem to know where she is, and George Hardy played the dad with a weird intensity throughout the entire movie. Lots of laughs stemmed from Hardy's performance for sure. Troll 2 is rated PG-13. Surprisingly, there is some disturbing body horror gore throughout, it's gnarly when people are turning into plants and branches and other foliage start protruding from their bodies. All the gore and plant transformation stuff is done practically. Almost all of it looks amazing. I did not expect to be blown away by the body horror in Troll 2. If I watched this as a kid, it definitely would have traumatized me. I dug the cinematography in this. There are some artsy shots and zooms every two seconds, which made me smile every time. The main theme is a banger. It sounds like something you'd hear while driving around in Mario Kart. I'm just going to ramble about more Troll 2 randomness. Joshua's sister is a weird character. She's introduced bench pressing, getting jacked. Her boyfriend Elliot is always hanging around with his bros. She hates that he's not spending more time with her. Elliot and one of his bros sleep in a twin bed together with at least their shirts off, so I don't know if he's really into the sister. The sister gives Elliot an ultimatum and sucker punches him to the ground. Those are some red flags. Elliot, you need to leave her. Be true to yourself and have a happy life with your friend. When Credence first shows up to seduce one of the boys with a corn on the cob, I didn't know if it was for him or for her. I never could have guessed that they'd eat it Lady in the Tramp style as pounds of popcorn materialized around them. I had to bring that up again. 
It's weird that so many people are down with eating weird-ass green goop. I guess some of the food looks kind of normal, but one dude literally eats green goop on a bun. No one would bite into that. No one. Oh, I almost forgot there are zero trolls in Troll 2. I'm hoping the documentary will shed some light on why that is. I'm assuming it's going to be something like a movie called Troll came out, so Troll 2 was made as a cash grab fake sequel like Zombie 2 in the past. If you have never seen Troll 2, I highly recommend that you do. It lives up to the hype. I guarantee you will not be disappointed. It's a beacon of light during this dark time. Number 6. Best Worst Movie 2009 directed by Michael Stevenson The dude that played the kid in Troll 2 meets up with George Hardy, the dad, and other actors to talk about life post-Troll 2 and also document the cult fandom and some screenings they attend. Claudio, the director of Troll 2, also pops up. George Hardy has a whole arc in the film where he goes from being an Alabama dentist to a pseudo-celebrity, then back to an Alabama dentist. No one is the killer. Best Worst Movie was not what I expected. I thought it would be more of an in-depth look into how Troll 2 came to be, but it's more about the lives of the actors post-Troll 2 and the cult status the movie gathered. What did I learn about the creation of the film? Well. Claudio, an Italian director, came to film Troll 2 in Utah. His wife wrote the script. Claudio takes the movie super seriously and is visibly angry that everyone laughs at it, which is strange because no matter how many times Claudio and his wife lie about the movie, meaning a lot to them, and how it includes a bunch of super important subject matter, Troll 2 is obviously an Italian fake sequel cash grab. After watching Best Worst Movie, I watched the trailer for 1986's Troll, which Troll 2 obviously tried to capitalize on for some reason. I just looked up how Troll did at the box office, and it placed 9th opening weekend. It looks like it made a decent chunk of change, though. It earned $2.6 with an estimated budget of around $1 million. Claudio seems sincere. He really does act like he cares about the movie. Best Worst Movie isn't a movie about Troll 2. Best Worst Movie is an expose focusing on regret. The main plot line of the documentary is George Hardy coming to terms with his. It's actually pretty dark. Best Worst Movie starts off showing us George Hardy, this happy man who's loved by everyone who meets him. Michael Stevenson then shows up and parades George around at some Troll 2 fan screenings where he's loved and adored. This fame then goes to George's head like it would to any of us. George begins to think his celebrity status is bigger than it is. He starts going to conventions and realizes that even general horror audiences that attend horror conventions don't know who he is. This is the point where you see this always chipper man become frustrated and angry as he realizes he's not as relevant as he'd believed. George lets us know that he wanted to be an actor, but his dad wasn't supportive, which pushed him into dentistry. Do I think George Hardy could have popped up in a bunch of terrible 80s horror movies? I do. I think he could have found a way in. It's heartbreaking to see him realize his situation as he projects his frustrations onto other horror actors that are at a convention with him. 
At the end of the documentary, it seems that George has come to terms with things. He got his 15 minutes of fame, which is more than most of us. Besides George, other Troll 2 actors are included to a lesser extent. George and Michael go to Margot Prey, the actor who played the mom's house, since she wasn't getting back to them about the documentary. They meet with her, and it's clear that she's dealing with some mental illness. Don Packard, the drugstore owner, makes an appearance and is very upfront with his own struggles with mental illness. It felt a bit exploitative, including them. Don seemed to want to do it at least, but Margot wasn't really interested in being involved before George and Michael showed up on her doorstep unannounced with cameras. I went into Best Worst Movie wanting to see the creation of a beautiful train wreck and came out with feels and concern for Troll 2 alumni. Do I recommend Best Worst Movie? I think so. I'd say watch Troll 2 first for sure and prepare yourself for some heavy stuff. You'll learn a decent amount about Troll 2 and regret. Number 7, Tomie, 1987-2000, to 2000, created by Junji Ito. No real spoilers, an unnaturally beautiful girl named Tomie drives men around her to kill her, which results in oodles and oodles of more Tomies. Light spoilers, men want to chop her up after they fall for her, and Tomie will regenerate fully from any chopped off part. Lots of hijinks ensue. I really dug Tomie. The idea of this weird, unkillable, succubus-ish girl is fantastic. So many odd and wacky situations are included in the big old Tomie collection. The Tomie tome, if you will. It's interesting to see Ito's art improve as the Tomie story goes on since its initial run started in 1987 and ended in 2000. There's a bunch of body horror in Tomie and all of it is masterfully illustrated. As a whole story, Tomie is my favorite out of Tomie, Uzumaki, and Gyo. There isn't much of an overall plot. At least one Tomie connects all the stories. Tomie is the key to all of this. I'm trying to avoid spoilers. I can be vague. One of my favorite aspects of Tomie is all the different ways she's able to come back and ruin everyone's lives. That Tomie, she's so mischievous. I felt like Tomie included a lot more humor when compared to the other two collections I read. I'm not recalling any specific comedic elements in Gyo or Uzumaki. In Tomie, one of my favorite parts is when Tomie is just a face. A face that wants to be laid down on a comfy pillow and eat snacks. Face Tomie is funniest Tomie. She reminded me of my dog since he refuses to lay down on any surface that isn't soft and always wants food. I am also driven to cut my dog into pieces. This is my last resort. Suffocation, no breathing, don't give a... What? Wait, what the hell? Get out of here, Papa Roach tangent. What was I talking about? Oh yeah, cutting up my dog. That was a joke. I would never... He'd probably kill me if I tried. He'd be like, you tried to remove my limbs, mortal? Face all eight pounds of my fury. He's just a little guy. A little guy that is full of evil. If I get another dog that's a lady, I'll consider naming her Tomie. My current dog's name is Skeletor. A big name for a little boy. I'm supposed to be talking about Tomie. It's good. You should check it out. 
you should read anything you can find from Junji Ito. I haven't been disappointed by anything I've seen from him. I see that there is an anime adaptation that covers some of the Tomie series and a billion live-action films based on Tomie. Maybe I'll check some of that out in the future. This seventh section is getting worse all the time. I'll probably be changing it up in the future. That's a wrap on Blank is the Killer 67, Deadly Politics, Killer Tones, and Hungry Goblins. Thank you for listening. You're amazing. If you thought this podcast was amazing or liked it at all, consider leaving a rating on iTunes. Thanks to Sticker Fridge for hosting the podcast, allowing it to enter your minds. Go check out other shows at stickerfridge.com. I'm recording in a new place, so hopefully everything sounded okay this episode. 68 will be out on April 5th. We are so close to the sex number. I looked for sex horror movies and didn't find much besides softcore horror pornos. I've already seen It Follows, which would have been great. Anyway, until the next episode, check any food you eat for weird greenness that it's not supposed to have, and just avoid green frosting altogether.